0: I'm Betsy Shepard, and welcome to Profiles from WFIU. On Profiles, we talk to notable artists, scholars, and writers, and get to know the person behind the persona. Our guest today is Jeremy Kagan. Mr. Kagan is a film and TV writer, director, and producer. His box office hits include The Big Fix, The Chosen, and The Journey of Natty Gann. Kagan has served as the artistic director of Sundance Institute, and he is currently the chairperson of special projects for the Directors Guild of America. He also works as a professor at the University of Southern California, where he founded the Change Making Media Lab, which creates films for social change. Thank you, Mr. Kagan, for being here today. I'm excited to talk to you. You've had a very prolific and diverse career in film. Take us back and talk about how you first got your start in movie making.
1: I'd like to be able to say, like some of my students, I started when I was two years old and picked up an iPhone from my mom and made it, but that's not how that happened. Because I have very little hair on top of my head, I can attest to the fact that I actually knew film when film was actually celluloid in film. And when I was young, I was not interested in becoming a movie maker at all. I did enjoy animated cartoons and still do. And in fact, I'm actually making an animated film at this very moment with one of my brilliant students. But this was not part of where I was headed. I came from um, a family that was very much into education and also into arts. My parents encouraged my brother and I when we were young to take art classes and each of us was required to learn a musical instrument. So the whole idea of art as being part of your education was part of my education. And filmmaking actually occurred almost accidentally. Um, I grew up in New York. Um, and I went to a high school called Horace Mann that was, at the time, rather famous high school in New York City. And it was the first high school to decide to teach the Russian language. And I, because my heritage comes two generations from that world, from Russia, I decided to learn it. And I also had this idea, uh, rather naive, but kind of... Wonderful idea in a way. I thought if you learned the language of your, and at this time it was, enemy, you might understand them better. Well, so that was Russia at the time. So I began to learn that. And I had a great Irish teacher, and he spoke with a thick brogue, and he was one of these Wonderful guys who, who wanted to take you out of the classroom and into the world. So while we were learning the language, he would take us down to 160th Street downtown in New York, or actually uptown New York, where the old white Russian community was. And we would go upstairs. This is kids that were in ninth grade and walk up. And all of a sudden, we'd enter a smoke filled room, and there would be samovars and balalaikas playing. And we'd walked into the 19th century and into a Dostoevsky novel. And he also took us to see movies there were two famous theaters in new york one called the new york and the other th- called the thalia that would show old movies and movies that were foreign movies and we were seeing a double bill uh, at one time this is in the summer, very hot. And one of them was a, 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 a movie made from a, a, a play called *Revisor*, The Inspector General, by Gogol. And it was a, this is something, that if you study Russian, you could learn to actually read. It wasn't that difficult to read. And unlike other Russian novelists, this you could sort of approach as a, a learning the language. But it was on a double bill. And we saw this movie, and we stayed for the second movie. And the second movie was something that literally shocked me. I was seeing something I'd never seen before on a screen, something so dynamic, something so expressive that mixed music and spectacular imagery. Uh, It was a movie called Alexander Nevsky. And I remember walking out of the theater and turning to my teacher and saying a phrase that I would have never said any time before, all the movies I'd watched or the little television shows we'd watched when we were kids. I said, who made that? And it was made by a man named Sergei Eisenstein. And immediately I kind of looked him up in those days. There was no Google, so that meant going to the library. And there was one book that had been translated into English called Film Form and Film Sense, and I read it. And it was a book about film as an artistic and political medium. And it was really smart um, and extremely encyclopedic in its references. And this turned me on to film as a way of both artistically approaching the world as well as socially changing it. But I had no intention of becoming a filmmaker. I just was sort of excited by it. And... When I was at college, there were some photography and film courses, an animated course, because as I said, I was interested, and I took a couple of those, and so I you know, got interested in that. And I remember, um, because I was um, a very good student, and I went to, I'm sorry, I'll have to say at Harvard University, um, and uh, I know I'm at IU territory, and... I was thinking what I would do, and I was really interested in education, and the idea was that uh, maybe I would go to the ed school, and they were about to give me a, a scholarship. But I knew if I pursued a Ph.D., and I was interested in media and education, I needed to know how to make media before I started to become, quote, an expert using it. I didn't want to be an armchair general, and I went and actually do it, and then I could sort of find out how to use it. So I decided I'd study film first with still the intention of going back and getting into its use for educational purposes. And I ended up going to a graduate film school, which was then called the uh, Institute of Film and Television. It was part of uh, New York University. And as I started to actually make movies, it was so kind of electrifying and fun that I think... That was the moment where I said, hmm, I want to do this. But I hadn't, again, no thought or ambition to be part of, you know, large-scale Hollywood movie making. That was not what I was after. I just wanted to be able to learn how to make movies, and then when I started making them, make them. But it was, I was making eclectic movies. I was making experimental movies. I was making animated movies. And my first movie was a seven-minute animated movie that won Best Student Animated Film of that particular year. So uh, the idea of the kind of filmmaking that I do now and have done over the last decades was not part of my thinking. But then I got a, a fellowship to a place called the American Film Institute, which was in Los Angeles. That took me to Los Angeles. And at that time... There was such an interest in new young filmmakers because two movies had come out, one called Easy Rider and another called American Graffiti, that the studios thought were going to be flops, but were incredible successes. And they had no idea how to make these movies or get to that audience, and they thought, we need young filmmakers to come into the industry who know how to make those movies. So I was at the right time in the right place. I was a young filmmaker in Los Angeles at the American Film Institute when it first started. My, college, my colleagues at that time were people that are like David Lynch and Terry Malick. These were people that were, there were 12 of us sitting in this institute at the time, American Film Institute. And all of these people ended up moving into the more um, conventional Hollywood world because they needed young filmmakers. So that's a very long answer to your question.
0: Well, that was you were one of the first graduating classes at the American Film Institute. Is that right?
1: We were the fir- very first class at the time, and at that time it was a conservatory. Every one of us had been making films and were in the process of making films, so we were collected there. There were no classes. This was not a college or an institute, except that it was, in a, fact, a conservatory. And what was Special about it was not only were these exceptional people, but none of us knew who each other was. We were just all there, new filmmakers. And the old timers who were still around would come on the weekends. This was the time of film before videotape and before digital. And they would show a film and sit down and talk with us. Now, My filmmaking career, in terms of who I admired, were all the European filmmakers. I loved the French Nouvelle Vague. I loved the Italian filmmakers. I loved the Russian filmmakers. I didn't know a thing about American filmmakers. I didn't, this is an admission to those people who love movies out there, I didn't know who Howard Hawks was. I don't know if I'd ever seen a John Ford movie. I knew Hitchcock. But the point is, Hitchcock and Howard Hawks and John Ford, they all came to be with the 12 of us, to share their experiences. So we got exposed to the true masters. Um, And in many ways, I was so naive, I didn't realize how to take advantage of them. And again, I never expected to ever be making the kind of films. I never expected to make a feature film while I was at the AFI. I thought I'd go back to New York and actually do some work with what was called the Children's Television Workshop, which became Sesame Street. That's where I thought I was going to be. But... Hollywood wanted um and I got my opportunity to direct a uh, television series very surprised I remember I'd only worked with crews of five people I had very long hair at the time and I wore sandals and I really didn't look like I belonged on a Warner Brothers set but um I quickly knew what to do and then was able to move as I look at my students now, amazingly fast in terms of uh, my career as a filmmaker. And inevitably, within five or six years, I was making my first feature movie.
0: You mentioned American Graffiti and Easy Rider, which set the tone for a new style of filmmaking, especially Easy Rider, which was a countercultural movie. Mm -hmm. Your first feature film was Heroes, starring Henry Winkler, Sally Field, and Harrison Ford. The film is about two Vietnam vets and the effects that PTSD has on their life and relationships. The film came out in 1977, and it was one of the first post-Vietnam War movies to deal with veteran struggles. Mm -hmm. What motivated you to make that film?
1: I think I've always been motivated to make movies that can make a difference. I know this comes from my parents, honestly. My father was a clergyman. My mother was an educator. Both of them really were believing that our role as individuals was to contribute to the society around us and that our role also was to aid those in need. So that became a kind of overall motivation for me since I was young. And therefore, to use media that would take on subjects that were issues that needed to be increased awareness or potentially motivate change, that really sort of was a natural extension from the way I was brought up. So I remember the first feature films I was offered were commercially uh, exploitative and I had absolutely no interest. I said, no, I don't want to do this. Uh, this is a movie I wouldn't go to see, and this is a movie that isn't about anything. When Heroes came, it was about something. So it excited me. And I knew that this was an issue that was an important one for us to deal with. And what I liked about the movie was it was extremely entertaining. Um, There was good humor in the piece. There was unexpected drama and a good love story as well as some powerful visual action uh, sequences. So that though this really was about dealing with the agony of returning as a soldier to society, it was done in a very entertaining way. So that became, and it still has become, even, you know, 40 years later, the essential interest of me as a filmmaker. How to use the media to either increase awareness or motivate change, but doing it in a way that entertains an audience and holds the audience's attention.
0: How did you do research for the film In explaining the mindset of someone dealing with post-traumatic stress disorder, As
1: with any film that's about a subject, I did my homework. I spent time with vets. Um, In fact, I spent time with a lot of vets who, in fact, were carrying their wounds with them, not just the emotional, psychological ones, but the physical ones. Um, There were a number of people who were in wheelchairs um, that I hung out with and talked to and liked them so much that I put them in the movie. Um, they weren't actors, but they were real. Um, and in fact, the opening sequences—they're there. So, I did my homework, and that's part of the process. Uh, in terms of uh, academically looking at this, it's called preformative work that you do. I just am making at this very moment a movie called Shot, which is about the uh, consequences of gun violence on three people. And I have spent a lot of time over the last years talking to people who've been shot.
0: Is that a methodology that you learned in film school or is it something that you just decided to do on your own to take a, an ethnographic approach? You know, I think that's
1: that's college. That's education and certainly not film school. That is just, you know, when I went to the, this fabulous high school and this good college, uh, you know, that was part of, you know, you did your research in order to be able to arrive at some conclusions or theories. So that just was the, the nature of what I do.
0: Well, heroes definitely there's a sense of needing to pick up the pieces and there being real damage caused to individuals and perhaps to the American psyche, you know, in the in the post war era. And your nineteen your next feature film, The Big Fix from nineteen seventy eight, which stars Richard Dreyfus, deals with similar issues. It's about a sixties student uh, student activist from the sixties turned private investigator who's having to deal with his past record. Did either of these films come out of experiences that you had?
1: Well, I didn't write either of these two films. So um, I'm the interpreter of these films. Um, I'm the translator of these films. But I identified with particularly the character in the big fix that Richard Dreyfus played because of the political activism that he participated in and I did the same thing. So the anti-war movement which was personally effective because I didn't want to go off and go kill somebody, particularly somebody who I regarded as a non-threat to my existence or my country's existence. So... That activism was really part of where I, you know, as I said, I became a a participant in, and I was exposed to some of the leaders of that movement at the time. So this character's history was, to some degree, a similar history to mine.
0: It's a film noir And it's always been really interesting to me, the relationship between American history and film noir. Film noir erupted after World War II Mm -hmm. and was a way, a roundabout way of addressing the trauma that social, you know, that that um, soldiers had experienced and also the different urban issues that followed people home. And there was reemergence in film noir after the Vietnam War. With Chinatown and other films, did you think that the film noir was, I mean, the appropriate avenue for dealing with issues? I
1: wouldn't call, I mean, though this is a detective mystery, I wouldn't call it a noir piece because in a way it was a reinterpretation of the whole idea of particularly the noir character or the detective character. The author of this, Roger Simon, who's gone through quite a political shift in his own life over these last years, but when he wrote this, he was definitely a progressive. And um, what he created was a character that was antithetical to the normal American male detective hero who's always a loner. This concept of the individual American hero who operates on his own and i'm emphasizing the his is part of that noir tradition this character this detective he's got an ex-wife he's got two kids he's got an aunt that he has to take care of even when he's going out to do his investigations he's got the kids in the back of the car this was someone who was totally interconnected to other people Which was a shift in the way that character usually is portrayed, and I admire Roger so much for creating this guy because one of the things that we've had in terms of our idea of hero is the hero's a loner and does it on his own, and it's time we come to the place where we only do it together. That's the only way anything happens. We do it as a community. And we have to get that, that's, that community is what we also need to create. And the time we're living in, if you think about this, you know, when I asked sort of what, what the nature of movie making is at one time, or what, why people like movies, at one time movies were totally a collective experience. If you wanted to go to the movies, you went because other people were there. Now, you don't have to ever go to a theater in order to experience. You can be alone in your room, and watch and hopefully have not downloaded and stolen the films, but people do this all the time, unfortunately, and you can do it on your own. So community in many ways, even with Facebook, there's still this separation. And the question is, how do we create that community? And this character was in a community, and I think that was really special.
0: Yeah, it is really different from the archetype of the detective in Mickey Spillane and Dashiell Hammett books where it's almost kind of a, a, a thuggy character that doesn't have any history. And in The Big Fix, Richard Dreyfuss's character has a lot of history, and that history comes back to haunt him, but it also helps him do his job. What was it like working with Richard Dreyfuss? This was right on the heels of...
1: He won the Academy Award while we were working.
0: Yeah. Can you tell me about that?
1: Um, well, first of all, Richard is extremely smart and an incredibly gifted actor. But there was this wonderful moment for me when Richard... And it was it was a, sort of one of those teaching moments. When Richard did something fabulous, it was unexpected. And I went up to, up to him afterwards and said to him, how did you do that? And he looked at me with this strange look and said, do what? And what I realized was great performances are really in the moment of the performance and the actor is not aware necessarily of what he or she's doing they're just being truthful at that moment and Richard had that great capacity to do that so the awareness was my job as the director and there's a famous director theater director named Harold Klerman who once said the director is the audience of one meaning it was me To look at what he was doing and be affected by it and either alter it or say, great, let's move on. But not to ask him how he did it, because that would have made him more conscious of his process rather than letting the process be instinctual, immediate, spontaneous, which is what you want. So that was a real... Wonderful lesson for me to get. that, um, And I've argued, by the way, Irv Kirshner, who did the second Star Wars movie, he was an acquaintance of mine, and I, because of the work that I do at the Directors Guild of America, I've m- met and had long conversations like you and I are having right now with literally hundreds of the greatest directors in the world. I've been incredibly fortunate to do that. In one conversation, Irv and I were talking about that issue of how much is an actor to be aware of what he or she's doing. Irv believed that there was sort of like this... Percentage like ten percent they should be, um, and if they studied acting, of course they might be because the, there are obviously things you know how to do. There are techniques that you know and you can apply, and but we were both in, sort of admitting one part of it was what you want to do as a director is to create an environment, an atmosphere, and a guidance so that the actor does what he or she does. In an absolutely unexpected but neededful for the character way, that's our job to have created the possibility that that's going to happen, but to not have the actor observing themselves.
0: Because in that sense, they're completely unselfconscious. They're able to take on the role fully.
1: And the work that they do, because it's interesting about what you talked about, homework in terms of my work as a director is also the homework an actor does. An actor needs to do the homework of creating a character. What is a character? Now, we each have a character. You've got your character. I've got mine. You know, my character is going to be a little bit different talking to you than potentially, let's say, talking to my brother or talking to a student. Well, there's some variance, but there's sort of of a consistency to it. If an actor is going to play a part that is not just reflective of who he, she is as as their character, then they have to do the homework. That homework is understanding the perception of another human being. And to do that, you have to understand all the relationships that human beings had. And you have to know the prior circumstances that brought that human being to this moment. That's the homework. Once you've done that homework and owned this new character, then when the director says action, you are doing it within the world of that character, the perception of the character you created, and then you just let, in essence, the truth come out as it would come out in the moment.
0: This is Betsy Shepard for Profiles. Our guest today is Jeremy Kagan. Mr. Kagan is a film and TV writer, director, and producer. Thank you so much for being here with us today. Let's talk about your 1981 movie, The Chosen, which stars Robbie Benson. And it deals with the post-World War II generation and the political sentiments that came about. More specifically, it deals with the rise of Zionism within the urban Jewish community following the war. It traces the unlikely friendship between the son of a Zionist and the son of a Hasidic rabbi. And the battle lines that get drawn between them. Mm. Are there any parallels to your life? And what motivated you to make this movie?
1: This movie wanted me to make it. Um, This is a story I've told a number of times. But it also is a story that I think reflects some of the things in each of our lives. Sometimes something pulls us. And we may resist it. But... When that pull is strong, it may be important for us to go along with the possibilities. It makes me think of that gospel song, you know, step back, let God do it. There was a script that was sent to me that I read and thought was a, not a very good script at all that I said no to. And my career was... So, you know, starting off, I'd made you know, Heroes was a big, giant financial, commercial success. So that made me of value to Hollywood, because Hollywood's about profit. Um, and The Big Fix was very well respected. Didn't make as much money, but you know, I was I was sort of in the world now, and so I was getting scripts. And I read this one and said no. About two years later. I get a contact through my agent. I had an agent now. or I had an agent before this, too. Uh, f- that the uh, uh, Landaus, who were very famous producers, they produced uh, uh, The Man in the Glass, Les Booth, and Rhinoceros, and and The Pawnbroker, some fabulous movies, wanted me to direct a picture. And they, uh, they sent over the script. And I opened up the script, and I start reading and I, I read this script before. Oh, this is that. Oh, this is. This is not a good script. Why do these fabulous producers want to make this? So there so was I, no
0: update to the script. No, it was the same
1: script. <laughs> Two years later, I'm getting the same script. But why? So I went out and bought the book. I'd never read this book by Chaim Pauck. I read that book that night, and I'm not a fast reader. I'm just. But that happened to capture me, and I realized the book was brilliant. I mean, this was an amazingly smart and emotionally powerful story and ooh, great characters. I, I thought well, I called them up the next day and I said, absolutely, I'll make this movie. Uh, but you have to let me rewrite the script because... <laughs> okay, fine. And so I did. But the reason it spoke to me and the reason it wanted me to make it was because it really reflected the realities of my own life. My father was a clergyman. My father was a rabbi. I come from literally hundreds and hundreds of years of people who, in fact, were rabbis, which means teachers. So one of the characters who is the son of a rabbi, well, that's the one Robbie Benson plays. That was me. On the other side of that, my father was the first clergyman in New York State to get a Ph.D. in psychotherapy and psychology from Columbia University. He was a practicing therapist as well as a practicing clergyman with his congregation. So that whole issue of psychology as an approach to human nature and to changing human nature was the enlightened, if you will, new approach to uh, um, sort of helping other people, that also was part of my tradition. So these two sides in this movie, one a very traditional side and the other a very sort of modern, progressive, intellectual side and, and activist side, that's who I grew up with. My father marched in the Civil Rights Movement down in the, in the early 60s. So that balance of these two characters, because there's this other character played by a wonderful actor named Bill, Barry, Barry Miller, uh, who's Maximilian Schell, plays his father, This was really sort of me. Now, I didn't grow up with a very uh, orthodox religious background at all. In fact, I didn't know how to pronounce the word Hasid or even know where they were or anything about them. And I had to do my research for that, too. And that research literally changed me. I started to go to this fabulously fascinating intellectually dynamic, emotionally warm world of this Hasidic movement, which was it's not just an orthodoxy because it's an orthodoxy that is also very populist and extremely spiritual. I didn't know anything about those things. Nothing. I know nothing about them. But I would spend weekends with them. And by the way, you had to spend weekends with them because their tradition is on Friday as the sun goes down till Saturday as the sun goes down, you don't do anything except go into another phase of existence in which you are concentrating on your spiritual side, not your physical side. That's what it's about. So when I would go do our research, I was there for 24 hours, sometimes for 48 hours. And I learned about this world that I knew nothing about and came to admire it with such sort of Excitement that it shifted the kind of person I am and my own spiritual practices.
0: In a way, you were having the same experience as the character, who is the the more secular of the two, falling in love with this tradition that he didn't know anything about.
1: In very many ways, yes. And yet, at the same time, this story is about the boy who is the heir to, in those days, and it's even true, the Hasidic masters, their sons would often take over for them because they'd be educated when they were young to do so. And this boy, because he's got a great mind, and he reads you know, with a photographic memory, is uh, getting exposed to lots of other things besides the enormous tradition that is represented by the Jewish sages, and he's getting exposed to modern ideas, and he suddenly decides he wants to become a psychologist. So he literally abandons part of this tradition to enter into the new, newer traditions or newer sciences and studies. So this battle has been also in my own life. Because there's sometimes when I would like to honestly, I'll use this word, keep Shabbos, which is that 24-hour prayer period. I'd like to stop, and if I were an Orthodox Jew, I would stop. But my life as a creative person and as a, a, a person of our time, sometimes I can't stop for 24 hours. You know, we have to shoot something on the weekend. We or I have to prepare something, and and I feel that struggle. Because there's a part of me that gets the gift of taking 24 hours off and realizing who you really are. And there's a part of me that says, no, there's just so much to do that I can't take 24 hours off. So I, I, at this very moment, are in the struggle that is reflected in the issue of that movie, but the other issue in that movie that's really powerful for me, and as I was making the movie, and oftentimes when you're making the movie, the movie talks to you and tells you what it's about, it became real clear what that movie was about as I was making it, and it's about tolerance. i didn't know that when I started it, but I got it as we were making it's about recognizing the essential ability to allow other people to choose the way they want to live as long as they're not doing any harm to others or themselves. And that diversity of belief and practice makes for the excitement of the world we live in. It's like as we think about all the species now that are being destroyed, and you realize it's the diversity that makes life exciting. I remember Thomas Jefferson said something like, you know, we want to unite in terms of our political world for fairness, and we want diversity in terms of our belief systems and religious practices. This is Thomas Jefferson. So the idea of tolerating other people's beliefs, and maybe even getting to know them, is what this movie was encouraging.
0: The movie traces the different strains of Judaism in America And it also shows the rise of conflict due to political and historical circumstances, as well as the possibility of reconciliation. Did finishing this film, did it feel different than finishing your other films? I mean, were you, was there a certain sense of pride in showing that to your family? Pride's
1: difficult because I think there's a danger in it because it gets your ego even bigger than it needs to be. I um, mean, I'm delighted to be able to be in this interview, and there's, you know, obviously my ego is satisfied by being having attention paid to it. But the moment for me was a personal one. When the movie was finished, and it was made independently, in those days there was no such thing as an independent movie, but that's the way it was. And So no one really knew what was going to happen to it. And I didn't know if it was a good movie or a bad movie at the time. And I knew it wasn't a bad movie. I didn't know how good it might have been because I was too close to it. And we had, uh, it screened and we, uh, I got a call on Monday from the head of uh, two of the studios, Columbia Studios and 20th Century Fox, both of whom called me, not the producers, to say, we love this movie, we want to distribute it. When the movie finally did get distributed, I remember it opened up on a rainy day in Los Angeles and I drove to where the theater was and there was a line around the block and I remember thinking of my dad at that moment who had died and I remember tearing up because I knew he would have been, he would have been proud that his, uh, the work of his son was being paid attention to.
0: In 1985, you made a film for Disney called The Journey of Natty Gann, which tells of an intrepid young girl who hops the rails in search of her father during the Great Depression. Why did you decide to do a children's movie?
1: I read the script and thought it was wonderful. Jeannie Rosenberg wrote the script, and I love the fact that the hero was a heroine, um, that it was a teenage girl who really had uh, the, 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 the gumption to take chances and risks. And I just was excited by that character because we hadn't seen that character. And I thought Jeannie uh, did a remarkable job in creating this this character. And I was uh, excited also to sort of deal with that time, to take on in a way what it was like during the Depression, particularly for kids. And literally millions of kids were on their own during that time. And I remember one of my mentors was... John Cassavetes, a great American director, directed Faces and Husbands and the Woman Under the Influence. And John was saying, well, what's your next picture, kid? And I was saying, well, I told him a little about it. I said, so, so well, let me get this straight. You got a kid, you got a wolf, and you got trains. So you're kind of on a suicide trip. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and having all those things together was it was actually a joyous experience um the, the young girl that we found Meredith Salinger, who not, actually never really acted before uh, did a uh, spectacular job creating this character. And the wolf that was actually part Malibut, part wolf, named Jed, was this amazing animal with such presence. In fact, you weren't allowed to touch him. You weren't even allowed to talk to him. Clint, his trainer, made sure that nobody on the crew could. In fact, the girl couldn't get the part unless the animal, who got cast for her first, liked her. And the animal was very trepidatious about anybody. And it was exciting to sort of, you know, create this world, which is one of the things that's so remarkable about movie making. Each time you make a movie, you are exposed to both a whole set of new people, usually, which in itself is fabulous, but you're also oftentimes taking on a subject that requires you to really step into it and to embrace it and to be surrounded by it. So learning about that time, which I didn't know a lot about, that fact that I just told you about the million kids, I didn't know, Um, and that the kids traveled in gangs, I didn't know. In fact, the middle of the movie has a whole section where she actually joins a gang of kids. And that got in the movie because as I was doing research, I found out about it and I said to Jeannie, let's put this in. And so a whole section of the middle of the movie is about what we found out about. So that experience of continually learning is one of the gifts uh, of movie making.
0: Both The Chosen and The Journey of Natty Gann are period pieces. And especially The Journey of Natty there's a lot of really exquisite sets and these really cinematic on-location shots. Can you talk about how the challenges of adjusting to that kind of production?
1: Well, first you need to surround yourself with other artists who can help you realize these uh, worlds. Um, And I was fortunate enough to have a phenomenal production designer and uh, actually a very famous costume designer um, who, in fact, was nominated for an Academy Award for the costume design for that movie. And so these people steep themselves into their research, bring that to you as a director, and then you're able to select that. But what was... Interesting about this movie was we were trying to find real locations because this was not an expensive movie we couldn't build and there was no CGI in those days so although we did do uh, what are called matte shots uh, which uh, which are combinations of sort of paintings and what you photograph that's been around since the beginning of movie making this sort of preceded CGI but we were trying to find real locations that really went presented. And we were up in Vancouver, and they were just about to tear down a whole old area of Vancouver. We were like a month and a half ahead of the teardown. But that area all was from the 1920s through you know now. So we, we weren't able to photograph it before it was wrecked down. But I remember there was... What what I like is, is to think of movies as evolutionary, that... It starts with a script, and then once you cast and find the locations, that changes. And then once you're shooting, it changes. And once you're in post-production editing and adding all the elements of color and music, it changes. So it's this changing process. So in this particular movie, Jeannie had written where the father had gotten a job across the country, working in a mine underground. Mm -hmm. Now, as I'm scouting locations to find various parts, like this old part of Vancouver at that time, we're also scouting locations where the mine might be, and I'm in a helicopter. And as I'm flying around, I'm looking at these phenomenal old-growth trees, these spectacular forests all around Vancouver, and I'm thinking, wow, wow. That's interesting. Of course, it has nothing to do with the mind, but it's fabulous. And all these roads that curve, roads that lead up, and my mind is sort of getting stimulated by this visual imagery. And then somebody shows me while I'm there a documentary, a 15-minute documentary about what's called tree-topping. Now, tree-topping is where these (laughs) brave guys climb these incredibly tall pines and they cut off the top of the pine and attach to it all kinds of winches and that is used to pull together all the trees that are chopped down they're dragged into one place so they can be loaded up and then shipped right and it's called tree topping and when you top a tree if you're on top of it the tree actually weaves back and forth and i'm looking at this and thinking wow this is amazing and i merely say that's what the father should be doing. Not being underground, should be doing that. So we do our research. We find people actually still do it because at the time nobody chopped trees. That was something they didn't the top trees in the 30s. Now they have machines and you know all kinds of stuff. But we found the people that could still do it, and that became part of our story. So the idea of adopting to the input that you get to shift your storytelling... Um, because of being open and being given the gift of something that you unexpected uh, that really shifted this particular storytelling. And it's, I think it's visually one of the beautiful things in the movie.
0: It's interesting because it's, it is, it's a children's or family movie. And at the same time, it deals with some pretty gritty social realist issues. It, it, shows the experience of poverty, of abandonment, of injustice. What did you want to teach kids in, with Natty Gann? Well,
1: I, if there was a... Listen, I think every movie... This is, you know, this is famous line with one of the guys who ran studios in the 30s and said, you know, if you want to send a message, send it by uh, telegram. Send a telegram. Don't make a movie. Now, I actually think every movie has a message, whether you expect it or not. And... In this was the courage of somebody to reconnect a family. That was one of the messages. The other was the uh, courage to trust, which had to do with the relationship between her and the animal. Um, So those themes were there. I wanted to make a movie that encouraged young women to be strong and to recognize their equality within any environment. And that was expressed by this character, who didn't deny her femininity, but at the same time, you know, was not suppressed by it uh, or embarrassed by it. So I wanted all that to be there. And in terms of historical time, that is, again, an awareness level. So for, uh, I feel like, you know, when you read some history in history books, and I liked history when I was a kid, but there's something dry about it usually. But when you see or hear a story about a historical time, it suddenly comes alive for you. So I felt that this was an opportunity for us to create a tough time where a lot of people were unemployed and show that there were ways that you had to respond to it. And I thought giving that to young people to sort of go through an adventure just like going through a Dungeons and Dragons adventure. Well, this is the historical adventure. Uh, And one of the qualities of of some of the films that I've made that are historical is that they actually last. Because when you're making a historical picture, both of these movies, The Chosen and The Journey of Natigan, because they're historical, because they're in a certain time, it allows them to be looked at even in the time they were made and now as almost contemporary experiences. You know, if you make a movie that is of its time, you know, like making a movie like in the 70s, right, and the wardrobe that they're wearing and the cars they're driving, well, when you re- see that now, it feels dated. But when you're making a movie that is a historical movie in the time that you're making it, which is not the time of that h- historical event... There's a different kind of relationship that I think allows it to in many ways last.
0: One thing that we've been talking about throughout this interview is the use of film as a form of advocacy and using film to tell the stories of underrepresented people. And I want to talk about your role as a professor and your founding of the Center for Change Making Media. Can you tell me about that?
1: Sure. You know, I was sitting with one of my teachers in Boston who I hadn't seen in a long time, and I was talking about the kind of movies that I like to make, which are movies that take on social issues, take on political issues, and the movies that have influenced me that have been the same, and recognizing that there was a need to utilize the media, to help advance shifting in behavior and awareness. And this former teacher of mine said, well, why don't you do something about it? Why don't you create an institution that does these kind of things? And the challenge hit me. And so when I returned to um, California and the School of Cinematic Arts at uh, USC, where I'm a professor, and I decided to create a lab The Changemaking Media Lab, that would do two things. It would study how film can be effective, and it would also produce, hopefully, effective films. And the thing that I started to learn from my colleagues who were the academic people, who were the people, sociologists doing this kind of research, anthropologists doing this kind of research, was there was a movement that started in Mexico that was called, uh, a lousy name, entertainment education. And the concept is that using stories, particularly dramas that fit in certain kind of social examples where there's a character who doesn't want to do the thing, there's a character who wants to do the thing, there's a character who's undecided, that using those as a model, and this is sort of out of uh, social change theories, that you actually could successfully um, influence people's behavior. Now, obviously, advertisement has been studying this and doing this for thousands of years. But this is specifically utilizing these kind of longer storytelling um, formats. And um, the best example is when it was started in Mexico, uh, there was an issue about uh, literacy, and it's a major issue in that city. And so they did a soap opera about a family that was illiterate. And it ran for about six months, Um, and it was a real old-fashioned soap opera. Mom couldn't read, so when she would go to a store, she wouldn't know I was there. The kids were put back in the school because they couldn't read; they were embarrassed. The father couldn't get jobs because, well, and and they start to get literate, and their lives change. But it was all the regular soap opera drama—you know, all the love stories and the hates and the troubles and all the stuff that are part of good storytelling or bad storytelling was all there in the soap opera. This is the only thing that happened during that year dealing with the issue of literacy in Mexico City. This is in the 70s. 90,000 people usually a year enrolled in literacy courses in Mexico City. After this soap opera, it was on for six months, 900,000 enrolled. And this became the first of now, by the way, which is a worldwide movement. It's not so much here in the United States, but in Africa and Asia, the use of what's called ee or entertainment education to get people to i don't for example if if you have a if you put those those uh, bed nets around your bed the likelihood of getting malaria will decrease so People have been making like, documentaries forever about, oh, here's this documentary. Show this documentary to people in poor areas that are getting malaria, and they see they're supposed to put this in there, and it doesn't do anything. Show a story about a family dealing with this thing, and all of a sudden, people start to change. So this has become the thing that we have now become advancing through the change making uh, Media Lab to um, various NGOs who have issues. And so, uh, example, um, we did a comparison between, um, and this was a research from the National Cancer Institute, between um, an information documentary and a comic drama with the same amount of facts, specifically about encouraging at-risk women to take pap tests to avoid cervical cancer. The sociologists took the two movies, took it out to you know thousands of women and did their research, which one motivated behavior change, and they tracked the women over a year. And there was a 10% increase in women taking pap tests who watched the drama over the women who watched a very well-made informational documentary. So we're encouraging people to use the drama as a way to motivate either awareness change or behavior change. So these are the kind of things that the change-making Media Lab is doing.
0: We started this conversation with you talking about an influential teacher that you had that exposed you to cinematic experiences. What what kind of advice do you give your students? What do you want them to take away from your classes?
1: I'm going to answer the advice question to students in two ways. I'm going to answer it in the, the way that um, just happened. I interview the directors who are nominated by the Directors Guild of America for Best Feature film every year. I've been doing it 25 years now and there are two books that have come out it's called Director's Close-Up Volume 1 and Volume 2. And in the most recent interview um, and these are three and a half hour in-depth craft interviews were with um, um, Ridley Scott who directed The Martian um, Alejandro Inaritu who directed The Revenant uh, George Miller who directed Mad Max Fury Road Tom McCarthy who directed Spotlight and uh, Adam McKay who directed The Big Short and I asked the same question what advice would you give to uh, new filmmakers and Besides the idea of, uh, I remember asking Steven Spielberg, a quick answer to this at one time was, well, make sure you have very comfortable shoes and you get more sleep than your actors. That's good advice, too. But of these five, three of them said, go out and shoot, go make movies. Because the point is, we live in a time where the pencil is a digital camera, and that digital camera's on your phone. And if you've got a computer, you've got an editing machine. So anybody can make movies. Now, making good movies... You need to study how to do that. Honestly, I do believe in film schools because I believe that, in fact, there's a lot to teach and learn So, because a lot of people make a lot of movies and there are a lot of bad movies that are being made out there by people who can make movies. But the point is, by doing it, you experience it. And this is an experiential media. So, therefore, go out and shoot. The advice that I also give to my students is sort of six questions how can you learn how to see better than you see now how can you learn how to hear better than you hear now how can you be able to know what it is that you want how can you get what it is that you want and how can you know when you've gotten it and why are you doing it in the first place and if you take those six questions and examine yourself in the process, then this advice, applicable to a life, but is also good advice to wanting to make films. How can you see better? How can you hear better? And I really mean hear better. So many of my students think they hear what's happening or see what's happening in front of them when they're directing a scene, and they don't. And these are the top students in the world who go to the best film school in the world, and they don't. They actually don't see what's right in front of them. You have to develop your capacities. And then, you, do you really know what you want? Well, it's a really good question. And if you know what you want, do you know how to get it? And what, do you know when you actually gotten it? The little example is, literally, you have to say, you do, you're shooting a scene, and you say, cut. Well, do you do the scene again or not? Did you get it? Did you not get it? Well, how do you know? And then the bigger question, why are you doing it in the first place? I
0: have one more question. Let's talk about, you mentioned earlier, you mentioned the documentary that you're working on, on the issues of guns in America. Actually, it's
1: not a documentary. This is a a dramatic feature film. I'm sorry, I
0: didn't know that. Can you talk about that?
1: Yeah, sure. This is a dramatic feature film called Shot, starring Noah Wiley and a brilliant new young actor who we just found. And it is the story of what happens to three people uh, as a consequence of a gunshot. And it is a movie about gun violence in America, which is a absurdly horrific reality that we face in our times. The idea that 80 people are killed a day, that 150 a day are in emergency rooms, this is not the world we want to live in. This is absurd. And I'm not talking about taking away guns from people who want to go out and hunting. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the idea that we live in such a gun-violent society. What are we going to do about it? We can't just accept it. That's nuts. It's too dangerous. The idea that a mother is going to ask another mother, do you have a gun in your house? And is it locked? Because if you don't, my kid can't play with you and your kid. Is this the world we want to live in? It's been bothering me ever since I actually since I became a filmmaker. And honestly, I have shot a lot of people in my movies. I feel there's a responsibility in movie making about dealing with it. And I realize one of the things that we never deal with in movie making is what does it really mean and feel like if you've gotten shot? So this movie for an hour of its storytelling is in real time, multi-screen in which we, having identified with these characters, go through everything that happens to them during that first hour that's known as the golden hour in the medical profession of whether you survive or not. So we get to experience emotionally, physically, psychologically, spiritually, what it really means when you get shot. And then the last part of the film is, and what are the consequences of that? What's your life like after you've gotten shot? And I wanted to use a dramatic form that was extremely emotional and characters that you really care about that would get us to have another awareness so that as we go on in this conversation about what we're going to do about the proliferation of guns being available to too many people who shouldn't have them or guns not being safe. You know, Think about this. Toys are made to be safe. Cars are made to be safe. Why shouldn't we make safe guns? I'm not saying you shouldn't have one. Let's just have a gun that's safe. It's time we shifted this. And I'm hoping that this movie, by being a good piece of entertainment, will contribute to the conversation.
0: Do you have a prospective release date? I wish it were being
1: released tomorrow. Um, At this moment, we're in the editing process. So within the next, I'd say, six months is the probability or a year. It, it, It takes time when you're doing these kind of independent pictures to find the proper way to get it out. But, you know, I would love it to play in every church in America, you know, because I believe that those of us who uh, go to church don't believe that other people should be killing each other so easily with weapons like this. It's time for a change, and I think we can institute it. So we'll see how much this movie becomes a uh, participant in that conversation.
0: I've been speaking today with director Jeremy Kagan. Thank you so much for being here with us today, Mr. Kagan. This is Betsy Shepard for Profiles. Thanks for listening.
1: Copies of this or other programs can be obtained by calling 812-855-1357. Information about Profiles, including archives of past shows, can be found at our website, wfiu.org. Profiles is a production of WFIU and comes from the studios of Indiana University. Josh Brewer is the producer. The studio engineer and radio audio director is
0: Michael Paskash. Please join us again for the next edition of Profiles.